This is the Toasted Sister Podcast, a show all about indigenous food. I'm Andy Murphy. This is episode 67, and it is a very special one. And I know I say that about all the episodes because I love them all, but this one is my first collaboration. The Museum of Food and Drink in New York is hosting a really awesome online food talk and cooking demo called Indigenous Roots, exploring the crossroads of African-American and Indigenous American cuisine. And guest chefs will talk about the ways in which both cuisines have influenced each other out of necessity. That's what the two-part online event is about, and that is what this podcast episode is about. You'll hear from chefs Yusuf Benrilla from Trade Roots Culinary Collective, Elena Terry, who's Ho-Chunk and the founder of Wildberries, and Mohawk chef Dave Smoke McCluskey. Like I mentioned, this is a two-part event. I'll be moderating the talk on Wednesday, August 5th with the chefs that I mentioned. And then the next day, the chefs will host an online live cooking demo. It's a ticketed event, so go to the Museum of Food and Drink website, mofad.org. That's M-O-F-A-D.org for ticket and event info. And a ticket to the cooking demo will get you a box of indigenous ingredients so that you can cook along with the chef. So that's really cool. Uh, But you need to get your tickets before August 2nd. So here's an appetizer for you. A little audio appetizer to wet the palate before the main course. I'm on the phone with Mohawk chef Dave Smoke McCluskey, who's in North Carolina, to get a little bit of background. Indigenous food, for for me at least here in the here in the eastern half of the country, is 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 pretty ubiquitous. Where where there's a lot of similar ingredients, um, corn, beans, squash, and things like that. So, um, you know, and a lot of my research with that, we eat a lot of uh, wild things on top of that. So. Um, I like to say that that kind of corn is a vehicle, and uh, everything else throughout the year kind of complements it. Uh, so, corn, beans, squash are just kind of things that we also add add other things to, and kind of enhance and change up here and there. So, with the addition of of African folks uh, being brought here, they tended to bring some seeds with them, and you know things like okra and and uh, all the different greens mustard greens and things like that. So uh, Benny seeds, which are sesame seeds, you know, like I said, okra. So there's there's some of those things that they've brought with them that are now kind of indicative of, of Southern culture or, or African-American food here. And uh, some of our things have, have enhanced their, their well-being with that. So Sweet potatoes are a big one where uh, yams are from are actually from Africa. So there's always a big a, a big question: Is it you know are the yams or are they sweet potatoes? Well, if they're grown here, they're sweet potatoes. Um, so uh, very two very similar vegetables that or, or tubers, if you will, that that you can grow and treat in a similar fashion. So I found that as is in, in my general cooking, that as every culture moves, uh, particularly here to America, you find. Uh, other things to substitute for the things that you used to have at home that you no longer have here. So, 
looking at, at African-American food is, is, is no different for me to be able to look at the way they're doing some of the things and, and some of the things that they're using. In my part of the South here in South Carolina, in, in, in Georgia, particularly in the low country areas, uh, a lot of those folks were brought here from West Africa, and uh, they were brought here for rice production. So you have a lot of rice here in the South that, uh, or, or a history there of, of, of eating rice and, and growing rice. So uh, a lot of the food here in South Carolina, which you'll hear people say Geechee and Gullah, uh, folks, uh, is is that West African cuisine? So you can recognize some of it. Now, we also, or I'm not going to say we, but uh, as, as indigenous folks, but uh, the Europeans, as they were traveling back and forth, brought things like corn and beans and, and, and tomatoes and peppers and stuff, and left them there in Africa. And they, you know, they eventually wound up coming back with the slaves as as things were going on. So. I like to tell folks that that you know right around sixty five percent of most of the world's uh, crops are actually indigenous to the Americas, uh, and that's kind of a big thing to point out because so many other cultures have embraced our foods and we don't often get credit for it. So sometimes I like to point some of the stuff out, but uh, you know you can ask. I was talking with somebody from from Africa a while back, and you can ask them, uh, you, you know, this this corn. We've always had this corn. And that's, yeah, no, you really haven't. You've had it for you know, maybe four or five hundred years. But you know, and and granted, that's a long time. But you know, it, it, it's not from Africa. Uh, but if you ask the average African you know, where corn's from, it's it's from there. So uh, you, know, you could say the same thing with potatoes or tomatoes or peppers and things like that. So all of the world's peppers are from here. All of the world's potatoes are from here. So there's there's just a whole bunch of different things for folks to kind of take as their own and and, and uh, run with it. I asked Dave about the difference between the food relationship indigenous people had with European colonizers and the food relationship indigenous people had with Africans and African-Americans. And just a quick note, we're talking about the 16th and 17th centuries here. Sure. Um, you know, as, as I understand things, a lot of the indigenous folks that were here in the southeast were were gone towards you know towards the uh, probably the middle part of, of of slavery happening here in the south. So a lot of folks had been uh, you know chased west or moved west or chased towards Florida or chased, chased further north. Um, so there was some contact as, as as folks have kind of dug in in the woods or in the swamps and and, and other places and kind of kept their cult, culture alive. So. Uh, you know, there were big villages and stuff like that as as slavery was was becoming uh, stronger here, if you will. But yeah, so uh, you know, one of the things that I think happened with a lot of places this is is that indigenous society embraced these these slaves as they escaped, and uh, you know, they're both from tribal societies. Usually, they're they're, they're matriarchal or they're, they they have you know, kind of earth based religions, if you will. So. I think folks got along, and uh, you know, so there was some intermarrying, and there were some friendships, and, and hiding of folks when the when the Europeans were looking at them. Um, when there wasn't as much intermarriage uh, between European Americans and and the indigenous folks that that, that went on, or, or you know, things weren't as friendly. So, where things got less friendly as as uh, in indigenous culture started to kind of pass, if you will, pass or move onwards. So. Just a very different different reaction to, to some of it, though. You know, people will say that the Cherokee got, got along with the whites for a long time until 
until it was time that they got uh, ethnically cleansed out of the South for the most part. I've heard rumors of, of you know, the, the Cherokee having beautiful houses and, and, you know, on the same par as, as what the European Americans had. So one of the things that I think, you know, happened with, with some of that, we still have people eating harmony here and there, which, which didn't always translate in, into the European American diet or, or the European diet, if you will. Um, for some reason, they just like to stone grind things and they kind of made themselves sick with pellagra and whatnot through the conversion of niacin and vitamins and minerals and things that, that the whole lying process takes with, with corn. Or nictimalization, as we now say in a contemporary fashion. So, so you still have some, some African Americans uh, adding, adding ashes to their grits at times. Uh, you have people still making hominy. So um, very similar uh, rudimentary cooking, cooking techniques, and they used uh, big mortar and pestles to, to pound their rice, so uh, very similar to how we use things with, with corn. So I think pretty adaptable cuisines as well, a little bit of forage, a little bit of farming. So I think they probably you know, meshed, meshed real well together. It's like a melting pot. One of the things that I'm trying to do is, is trying to take things out of the general melting pot and put it back into our own. So we can say, hey, those those foods are indigenous and they're ours and they're not yours, but you know we're happy to have you use them. <laughs> but uh, you know they're, they're, they're basically ours. So I'd, I'd I'd like to see us reclaiming a lot of our things and, and saying, you know, hey, those potatoes, those are nice that you did that, but they're actually ours. So, but there's no shame in re- recreating those those dishes for the rest of us to eat. You know. If you're not keen on those Native history references, the Trail of Tears, which took place in 1838, was part of that ethnic cleansing Dave mentioned. And forced removal of tribes from the East started even before that. And yes, some Cherokees, along with other members of the five civilized tribes, owned slaves and had plantations. So... Back to food and fast forward to 2020 or 2019. Here's Chef Yusuf Benrella talking about rediscovering his African roots. I went to Africa with uh, Michael Twitty and a group of people with Roots to Glory tours. It was a genealogical trip. So we all had taken DNA and found that some of our DNA leads us to Benin, Togo, in West Africa. We had a trip there in 2019. And I was able to rediscover a lot of food traditions and just a lot of familiarity. You know, being at a market and you see this basket of okra and greens. And, you know, it's like I often wondered why the food ways that we have here are as such. And it was just really plain to see um, that direct translation. And it was also familiar, very familiar. My path to rediscovery um, was... No, in no small part due to work I've done with Indigenous peoples, meeting Brian Yazzie at Standing Rock, working with Elena Terry and Dan Cornelius, and then, you know, the pride that people have in their rediscovering their traditional food ways. That just really piqued my curiosity and kind of led on a, a journey, which yeah, it's kind of interesting to see where we are now from that, where my starting point was. But, you know, over 400 years, We've lived alongside one another, and initially we were brought here as slaves, and we had to adopt the food ways for survival and to learn, you know. And then the history of that's just really, it's really interesting. And culinarily, it's really delicious to go back and to try to recreate 
different dishes and intersectional foods um, like hoe cakes and johnny cakes and cornbread. All that really has a root in indigenous ingredients, indigenous uh, culture. To rediscover that stuff is not only delicious, but it's also, I think, essential to carry on those stories and to, you know, map out our food, our food ways and our food traditions so that we have that knowledge going forward and um, to pass it on and to also have that educational opportunity. And then from that trip, Yusuf started Trade Roots. So Devin Hamilton, Candy Flowers, and myself started Trade Roots to to earn money to go to Africa, to raise money. So we started doing um, soul food pop-up dinners at Badger Rock uh, Neighborhood Center and selling, you know, $10 a plate. And then it really kind of caught caught on in Madison. So we started doing some weddings and then some um, then educational opportunities presented themselves, cooking classes, um, working with youth. Yeah, so it's kind of like just started as an idea to raise money to go to Africa, but then it kind of turned into more than that because there's a lot more possibility and potential um, that we discovered with trade routes. So now we're just work- working on establishing um, a West Coast branch, so that'll be in Los Angeles, and Devin Hamilton will be running that he lives there now. And then uh, the garden project that we're working on. So we're doing an Afro-culinary diaspora garden project, and that focuses on food that we have brought from Africa and also food ways that we've adopted into wherever we might live in America. And that includes tomatoes, corn, um, but then also growing vegetables like okra, collard greens, and um, melons and sorghum and things like that. Callaloo, which is a related to the amaranth family, but it's from Africa, and it's um, the primary, like, green, like, leafy green vegetable that people eat in Nigeria, as opposed to, say, something like spinach. So it's super nutritious, and it's easily incorporated into sautés and uh, stews and stuff like that. For the online cooking demo, Yusuf and Elena have created a really delicious menu. We're going to be cooking a blackened walleye with grits and blue corn-dusted okra that will be fried. So it'll be a nice little intersection of Native American, African, like with the, you know, the Creole-style blackened, Caucasian-style blackened fish. And we have grits, which is hominy that's been cooked, and then with the okra dusted with cornmeal. So I think it'll be a nice little combination of African flavors and indigenous food flavors as well. Speaking of Elena, here she is talking about working with Yusuf in Wisconsin. So I am lucky enough to have Yusuf Bimrella as um, my top sous chef for Wild Berries. And in working together over the past few years, it's hard to deny the connection that the African-American culinary diaspora and the indigenous culinary I guess just even ancestral foods, how they link together and historically how they are so intertwined, even with sustainability. So we started something called uh, Wild Roots, which goes off from Wild Berries and then Yusuf's Trade Roots Collective. And we started doing kind of mashups and fusion dishes with Seed to Kitchen cookery. So um, we've done some wonderful collaborations like a white corn mush with a gumbo. 
and it was all with these wonderful produce that were provided by uh, the Seed to Kitchen growers. When we do these collaborations, we do it to honor the history of those ingredients and the relationships that kind of brought these dishes to both cultures. I think it's important right now because a lot of those lines that kind of segregated the cultures that were put in place, not by us historically, are being dissolved. And it's just a wonderful time to be part of this, you know, people of color movement. And for chefs, being able to kind of represent those ingredients that nourished our cultures in times of oppression and represent them in a way that really honors those struggles and and not only the struggles of the people, but also the struggles of those seeds and the things that they had to go through just so that we could still have these like pure ancestral ingredients. It's a great honor as a chef to be able to have access to that and then to represent it in a way that can appreciate the ingredients, but also appreciate the history of how we were able to sustain those for so long, for centuries. You know, when you think of these seeds, not only from indigenous peoples, but also from the um, African-American diaspora, it really becomes about the nourishment behind it and the intention behind the importance of preserving those seeds the way that they were. So um, I think it's just a wonderful time to be a part of the food sovereignty movement and to be able to recognize that there were a lot of intertwining of growing and just being able to feed your families and the way that we supported each other to be able to support each other now is wonderful. I asked Elena about what people can learn from eating and cooking some of these dishes and using some of these ingredients. One of the things that I really like to focus on in my cookery is the intention behind the ingredients. So I don't just look at white fish as a white fish, but I think of the people that harvested that white fish and that it had to come from this lake and the journey that it took to get to me and all of that care that came from, you know, catching the fish to getting it to me is in that fish. And so when you want to cook that, you think about all of those people as well. And and I think that it just enhances it more, like the purity of the flavors. I don't think that that needs to be manipulated as much as, you know, when you cook with intention and you can appreciate where all of those ingredients came from. I believe that we're putting um, some cornmeal in there that came from bow and arrow and the utes. Um, I know that the ingredients are coming from the mobile farmer's market in part, and I know where all of those ingredients are sourced from and the history of them coming. So I think that once you consider those things in your cookery, then you are a little bit more mindful, not only when you're cooking and you know, being respectful of those ingredients, but also when you're consuming them, you're a little bit more mindful and appreciative of the pureness of the flavors that come from indigenous and Afro-culinary cuisine. 
If I could, and I am, I'm adding another voice here. Uh, so I came across Amethyst Ganaway, or she came across me first. Uh, she moved to Albuquerque, and I live in Albuquerque. Uh, we're both food writers, and we know other food writers and editors. Um, anyway, she's a chef and food writer from North Charleston, South Carolina, and she's studying this same topic. She's Gullah Geechee, and on her website, she describes Gullah Geechee food as not your typical Southern food. It's the food of West African slaves brought to build this country. It is the food of the native people who were here before us all. And it is the food of all the colonizers and founders and all the immigrants who have left and continue to leave their marks here. It is soul food in its own right, but more importantly, our food is American food at its deep, painful, and beautiful core. Here's Amethyst with more about her people and the food. The Gullah Geechee are a group of people who are the descendants of the enslaved West Africans brought to America during the transatlantic slave trade. They've lived in the low country and coastal areas of the southeast, predominantly along the Gullah Geechee Corridor, which spans from parts of North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and some parts of Florida, and they've been there ever since. They were brought to these areas particularly because of their knowledge of growing crops like rice and indigo. With them, they also brought crops native to their homelands in Africa, among them being okra, bene, peanuts, and more. Living on the islands, and in areas that were usually inaccessible until relatively recently, they often came in contact with indigenous tribes of the areas and exchanged valuable cultural knowledge. In the low country, it's common to see names of cities and rivers that were named after the indigenous tribes, and it's even said that the word Geechee possibly has roots with the El Geechee River, which is a, a Muskegee term for the river of the Uchis or the indigenous Uchi people who lived in those areas alongside the West Africans, or where the West Africans were brought. Foods typically known as southern or soul food like shrimp and grits and cornbread could not have been possible without this exchange of foodways. Their histories are sadly similar in ways that include the embrasures of their cultures through genocide and more recently gentrification. Through preserving the foodways of one, we are able to somewhat preserve the cultures of the other. Well, I hope that was a tasty appetizer for you. Again, find out more about the online event, which is called Indigenous Roots Exploring the Crossroads of African American and Indigenous American Cuisine at mofad.org. And links to all the chefs are in the show notes of this podcast. The Toasted Sister Podcast is supported by the Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Music is by the awesome C.W. Ione from Las Cruces, New Mexico. I'm Andy Murphy, the creator, host, producer, editor, illustrator, brand manager. You can just call me the overlord of the Toasted Sister Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and please support this podcast on Patreon. Patreon.